All right, so uh, you're new. What is your name? Jim. Jim? All right, Jim. My name is Joey. Welcome, Jim. We're glad to have you this morning. Uh, that should be easy. That's my dad's name, so I think I can remember that one. Uh, open up your Bibles. We're jumping in, or pull out your handout. Does everybody have a handout? I'm used to saying open up your Bibles, and we will do that. Uh, Ray will give you a handout. Uh, as you know, we kind of keep coming in and out, as, and as much as uh, I'm doing Sunday school, or I do Sunday school, uh, into uh, the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, the doctrine of Scripture. This is, I think, our third, maybe fourth time we've addressed this issue, and so we're going to continue. We've mentioned, as it says there in the, the subtitle, uh, we've been talking mostly about Revelation, the issue of Revelation. We mentioned last time, I think this was maybe three weeks ago, uh, we talked about the wisdom of God in giving us the written word, and what are the advantages of having the written word of God in the way that uh, he's preserved it, the way that he's used that to be dispersed among the nations, among people, that we can examine it, that we can study it, that we can read it, that we can copy it, and so forth. Uh, so we see the wisdom of God in that he has given us uh, the written word. Now, we want to talk this morning about inspiration, and there's a lot here, so I'm going to try not to, uh, you know elaborate too much, but stay and uh, pretty much with what's on the slide and to go quickly so we can uh, get through it, because I don't know when I will be up here uh, again. So I want to at least complete this uh, if possible. If not, we could uh, do that next week, but I want to try to do it this week. Um, let me note that uh, as we introduce this uh, topic, we're, we're just hitting the high points. We're not touching on everything. This is a large topic, as are all of these. These are simply meant to be introductory. And I want to also note that when we talk about the doctrine of inspiration, we're not talking about something that is simply interesting. We're not talking about something that is merely uh, doctrinal, uh, but it's highly personal. The doctrine of inspiration touches us, if understood, at the most intimate level of our existence. We want a divinely trustworthy source to know God, right? We want something that we can stand on, a way that we understand life, the way that we understand sin, the way that we understand salvation, the way that we receive comfort and encouragement in those things is from the word of the living God. In our darkest moments, where do we run if we know Christ? To the truth of Scripture. When we are faced with trial, where do we go to navigate through it in faith and righteousness? We go to Scripture. If we want to understand anything about our future and our hope that will carry us through this world in faithfulness and obedience and joy, where do we go? We go to Scripture. God has given us His Word for all of those things. So these are not light realities. This is not simply an incidental point of theology, but it's the very heart of our living out our salvation and working it out in fear and trembling. So it is absolutely crucial. Moreover, the doctrine of inspiration has everything to do with how we approach ministry. Why do we teach what we define, not we, but what we emphasize, expositionally through Scripture? Why are we committed to say our main task is to explain the Scriptures as God has given it in its context, what is meant by the 
author when it was penned? What is the Holy Spirit communicating to us? Why do we emphasize expository preaching? Why do we read through Scripture books a whole at a time in our Scripture reading? Why do we preach through books, complete books at a time? It is because we believe in the doctrine of inspiration. We believe in the doctrine of inspiration. So it is extremely important to who we are as Christians, to who we are as a church, and to how we know and glorify God with our lives. Now remember, I am going to try to move through this, uh, but Jim, uh, so you know to stop at any time. Uh, this is not meant simply to be a lecture. This is not sermonic, but we are going to think through these things together. So anytime that you want to uh, ask a question or make a comment that's relevant to what we're talking about, uh, please do so. Please do so. Well, let's start with then the importance of inspiration. And here are some good quotes. Merrill Unger uh, was a great Old Testament scholar. He says this, Since all evangelical Christian doctrines are developed from the Bible and rest upon it for authority, the correct biblical teaching of inspiration is, as it were, the mother and guardian of all the others. A faulty view of the inspiration of Scripture is bound to produce unsound views and foster radical hypotheses. Another quote by J.C. Ryle. Uh, now with the Lord. Inspiration, in short, is the very keel and foundation of Christianity. If Christians have no divine book to turn to as the warrant of their doctrine and practice, they have no solid ground for present peace or hope, and no right to claim the attention of mankind. They are building on quicksand, and their faith is in vain. And because Scripture and God's Word is so essential to the church, which is so essential to God's people, our salvation, and the honor and the glory of God among His people, it is, of course, the first place that is always under attack by Satan. Do we have to be reminded that God gave to Adam a very clear word in the garden? Did He? You shall not what? Eat from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a divine word from God to Adam, man, that was to be understood, considered, and obeyed. Uh, what is the first thing that Satan attacked in Genesis 3? What, what, is it, what are his first words? You know them. Did God say? That's the issue. That's the issue. Now, what he's, of course, undermining there is not simply the words of God, but the character of God. Is God, who is supposedly good, really good if he would forbid you from something that's for your benefit? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's putting doubt into their mind. He then denies it. God said what? In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What does Satan say? You will not die. God is not trustworthy. His word can be denied because it is a false word. It is a word you cannot trust in. It is a word that you can reject. And in your rejection, it will lead to your true joy, to your true benefit, to your true everlasting good. And then, what did he say? He introduces deception. For, explanatory, God knows what? In the day of you, you eat of it, you're going to be like God. So you have an increase of good available to you, but in order to get there, you have to not listen to God's word, but listen to my instruction. 
God does not have your best interest, I do. And it has been that way ever since. Satan attacks the word of God. God has spoken to us, and Satan seeks to deceive that. And we're not going to take that all the way around. Uh, Scripture has much to say on that. But the point is, the attack on Scripture shows its importance. Right? The, the center frontal attack of Satan on the Word of God shows that he knows how essential it is to God's honor and to his work among his creation. So that is very important. So let's briefly just consider then a couple of ways that Scripture is foundational or central to the life of the church. And we'll just look at these fairly briefly. But let's look up these Scriptures. Uh, maybe you could pick a Scripture. Somebody, we won't go through and assign them. But, uh, so if you get there before me, then we'll have you... Uh, actually, no, I'm going to read them because... Again, it doesn't come through clear on the recording if uh, somebody reads it out loud. Okay, four, or excuse me, five reasons that inspiration is, is essential to the church. First, it's essential to the church's existence. It's essential to the church's existence. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Since you have an obedience to the truth, that is the truth that was preached through the apostles, by the Spirit of God, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, quoting from Isaiah 40 here, all of its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever, and only the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. We exist because of the word of God and God's work by the Spirit through it. It is the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20. Now, we could go to the Old Testament and, of course, make these, and we will later when we go through see this is true uh, from the beginning of time. We already mentioned that briefly uh, just by God's word to Adam in the garden. But I'm focusing primarily here on the New Testament. just want to point that out. Ephesians 2.20, as we speak about the church. Ephesians 2.20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets did not die for the church. What were they? They were his instruments to reveal his truth and his word to reveal Christ to the church. In other words, then, the word of God that came by inspiration through the apostles and prophets by the Spirit of God is the very foundation of the church. Uh, you can look at Matthew 16, 18. For the protection of the church, you can stay in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 14. As a result, now he's already mentioned that a gift to the church are those who are assigned the task of ministries of the word, evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers. Uh, and then he says in verse 14, as a result of that ministry and 
the faithful response of God's people to that ministry. He says in verse 14, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is, in, who is the head, even Christ. Um, 1 Timothy 4, 1 we are to not be deceived by the doctrines of demons, but stand on the word of God. You can look up all of those verses. The point being merely that God has given his word for the protection of the church. How do we know truth from error? Because of what God's word says, right? The Bible. Right? You can answer back. Uh, so this is not a monologue. Uh, how do we know deception? By... The scriptures, by knowing the truth. That's what he's saying here. How do we know that if somebody's speaking what is right about God or wrong about God? We have his word. We are, to a degree that we are ignorant of the word of God, to that degree we are susceptible to the deceptions of Satan. And we are susceptible to the deceptions of our own flesh. To the degree that we are ignorant of God's word and God's truth, to that degree we are susceptible to the deception of Satan. We need to know God's word. It protects us from spiritual error, those things that would destroy our soul. It protects us from weakness. Um, it gives us strength. For the growth of the church, again, we can stay in Ephesians. Uh, well, we just mentioned that. Speaking the truth, we're to grow up in all aspects into Him. How do we grow as a Christian? Do you grow as a Christian by separating yourself from the Word of God, never reading it, separating yourself from God's people, and just say, now I love Jesus, so I'm going to go off and form my own relationship with Him. I'm going to shape my own ideas by my own wisdom, and I'm going to then become more like Christ. Is that how it works? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Ephesians, or 1 Peter 2 says... Long for the pure milk of the word. Who can finish that? That by it, Janice, you're our verse. Thank you. That by it, you might grow in respect to salvation. It's the word of God. It's by the word of God that we grow. And for the mission of the church. Uh, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. we know that. Go into all the nations and make disciples. How do you make disciples? Teaching them. All that I have commanded you. So these are all essential missions of the church. And um, they're all founded on the word of God. Okay. Any questions there? Anybody want to say anything about that? So how do you... I mean, this is an application. So when we judge... Um, so there's the application to us when we discern... When we are faithful as a church, or if we were in some other area and looking for another church, what is it that we look for? How do we define that? Do we define it by programs, or size, or music, or fun? What is, what, how do we discern what is a good church that will be uh, used by God in our life for our growth in Him? The ministry of the word. How do they handle the word of God? Not only from what they say, but how is that also worked out in their lives? Is this a Christ-like church? Is this a church who yields to the word of the Lord and is growing to be like Christ? Now that can take on shapes and forms, depending on culture and context and 
the music can sound different and kind of how they do some particular things can be different. But at the heart of how we discern where we should be is how do they handle the word of God, period. That's it. Um, other things are preference. They're preference. There's a lot of ways that you can do ministry. Those are preference. The key issue is how do they handle the word of God? Is it exalting to God and to Christ? And is it worked out in their lives by a people who seek to yield to him in obedience? Uh, loving, humble obedience. Some, inspira- uh, some definitions of inspiration. These are, of course, all in your notes. Divine human encounter whereby God reveals truth. Uh, another, help from God to keep the report of divine revelation free from error. Third, a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. That's better. Uh, and then fourth, a little bit more complete. Inspiration refers to the supernatural divine origin of Scripture, whereby God communicated His word through the agency of man, in no way compromising the individual writer's unique personhood, but utilizing their individual personality, intellect, and cultural geographical context in such a way that they communicated exactly what God intended to say, absolutely free from error, in the original document. There is a lot in that um, definition, but that covers comprehensively the essence of what inspiration is. We're going to talk about those things here. First, some key points then when we think about uh, inspiration. Again, stop me at any time. I'm going to to keep going, but uh, please feel free. First of all, it originates with God. To say Scripture is inspired is to say that it originates with God. That God is the ultimate source, not man. Scripture, in this sense, has only one author. Who did I read of? I think this morning, for whatever reason. Um, ah, man. Bill Nye. Bill Nye. Bill Nye, the science guy, who uh, rejects Scripture, rejects the gospel. Uh, read through Scripture, apparently, when he was younger. He grew up Episcopalian, I guess, uh, this article said. Uh, he grew up Episcopalian and uh, says he read through Scripture twice when he was uh, younger and made notes and then was convinced that uh, it was not the Word of God, in essence. And that, that amazes me. That, that just, uh, frankly, is just amazing to me uh, and, and marks what spiritual blindness looks like. What does darkness look like? And, and many of us, uh, I wasn't saved till I was 23, so, had the same experience before we were saved. Paul, in some ways, had a similar experience where he read it and he believed it to be the Word of God, but wrongly so. And so he crucified, he had a wrong understanding of the God revealed there and crucified uh, persecuted Christians. Um, but what I, I say that for this, what is amazing about Scripture to a believer and to really anyone who comes to it reasonably is that you read... From Genesis to Revelation, a document written over approximately, how many? 1,500 years, roughly, by how many authors? About 40 different authors from all over the map in terms of their position in life, in terms of their cultural context, in terms of their education, and yet you read Scripture with one voice. You can easily uh, reference 
uh, understanding each passage in its own context, in its own right. But you easily reference from Genesis to Revelation, to the prophets, to poetry, to the historical. From wherever you are in Scripture, it speaks with one voice. Why? Because it has one voice, ultimately. That is the Spirit of God. It originates with God. In that sense, it has only one author. Two, um, inspiration refers to the document, a.k.a. autograph. You'll hear that word sometimes is why I put it there. Autograph simply means um, the original document. And not the individual writer. Now, that's an important. God inspired the written word, not people per se. And we'll talk about this a little more. I'm just laying these out here before you, uh, out here to you. Uh, when we speak of inspiration, we say we're speaking primarily of saying that Ephesians is inspired, Romans is inspired, Genesis is inspired. The Psalms that we have recorded in Scripture are inspired. That's what we're saying. We're not saying that Paul, as a man himself, was simply inspired. That everything, he wrote things that were not recorded in Scripture because they were not inspired. What is kept for us is inspired. So we just got to remember that we're talking about the document primarily and not the individual writer. Again, it's not to the exclusion, but that's not what inspiration is particularly referring to specifically. Um, this is to affirm that God inspired then actual words, not simply thoughts, ideas, or general spiritual truths. We would affirm, though you may not call it this, Hopefully, maybe afterwards you may, but uh, that's not as necessary as just to be aware of the terms. Uh, verbal plenary inspiration. That means that God inspired actual words and all of the words in their fullness in Scripture are given to us by God. Sometimes, uh, someone will use the word infallible, but they don't mean by that what we mean. They simply mean sometimes, sometimes, by saying Scripture is infallible and only infallible, mean that generally the spiritual truth that was found in Scripture is trustworthy. But they don't necessarily mean that it is without errors historically, scientifically, or in other ways. They're not saying that. So they would still, somebody could say, I believe it's infallible, but I still hold to historical errors and all kinds of other issues with the actual text. Um, but we would reject that and say, no, Scripture is inspired in every part down to the jot and tittle. Not simply ideas or general truths, but actual words are inspired. And this is a very important point. Um, very important point. Um, third, God used man to write the actual words. God did not bypass, bypass the agency of man, but spoke as it were through him. But spoke through him. So, there is another sense where we can speak of Scripture as a human work, and in a more ultimate sense, as a divine work. Right? It's a product of God, ultimately, through the agency of men. They were guided under the providential hand of God. Okay, now that's really still more introductory. These things will be elaborated on in just a minute. Hopefully in the next 20 minutes. Yes, Linda? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's again, knowing Scripture. 
the things that people bring to us as contradictory uh, aren't contradictions. It comes from a clear ignorance of Scripture. So, for example, um, how do you have you shall love your neighbor, right? Love your enemy. And then you have in the law an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That seems rather harsh, doesn't it? Well, if you know the context of Scripture, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is emphasizing not retribution, but justice. He is to say that the penalty is not to exceed the crime. That there's to be an equal consequence for a crime committed. He's emphasizing justice there so that uh, retribution would not be taken too far. Uh, That's the context of what he's saying uh, in the Old Testament law. Uh, In the same law, he says that you are to love your enemy. Uh, When you have someone who is your enemy, a foreigner in the land even, you're to still care for them if they are without clothing, uh, if they need food and those type of things. Um, so it's simply understanding Scripture in its context. There, uh, I mean, there's example after example, if you want more. Um, does anybody else have one that stands out to you? Uh, where you're, somebody will say a contradiction? Mm-hmm. Right, and that's an. And that's, a, that's an excellent point. And Paul's bringing up several issues there. So not only understanding that particular, which is what he's saying in context, but also understanding uh, the progress of Revelation. So let me, and I, I want to just, because that is a big enough issue that I, I want to make just a couple, I want to add a couple of points to what you're saying there, just for our own, own thinking. Uh, for some reason, I was thinking about that just recently. But, uh, so for example, about destroying peoples, whole people groups in the Old Testament. How does that fit with a merciful and a loving God? Um, For one thing, uh, when God commanded his... First of all, we start with an understanding, well, the God of the Bible is the owner of creation, and all of creation has fallen into sin and rebellion. So death is a normal consequence of sin. So really, God is just to destroy every nation if he chooses to do so. He's not unjust to do that. He's not unjust to do that. So we have to understand the nature of God from beginning in Genesis 1 through 3 and the condition of man. That's one thing. The wages of sin is death. Secondly, that when God destroyed these nations in the Old Testament, they were not so, for example, like Islam that says go out and take over the world. These were specific nations in a specific area of land. So that's a totally different scenario. And with that, these nations were very wicked nations. These were nations that uh, even an unbeliever would look at at that time and say, well, they probably were worthy of being destroyed because of their violence and their gross immorality uh, of these uh, nations. 
Uh, so God is, not even, God is not acting, so for example, against simply a peaceable people who happen to be in the way. He's executing judgment, judgment as their creator on those whose wickedness was excessive, was exceedingly great, and would have been an influence also uh, on his people. Thirdly, you cannot look at that uh, command of God to the exclusion both of God's uh, declarations of mercy in the Old Testament and ultimately outside of the light of the cross where God himself bore his own penalty, that own wrath that he executes at some times and then ultimately would bear himself in his son. And thirdly, or fourthly, in the progress of Revelation is understanding that under the old covenant, Israel stood in a different position than does the church in this way. God used Israel as an instrument of his judgment on nations. He does not use the church as an instrument of judgment on, his nation, on the nations. He doesn't do that. He works through government. He does work through nations, but it's not specifically the church, which is from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So it was right for Israel to do things, and it was righteous that it would be unrighteous for us to do. So all of those and, and actually other things come into play into understanding that. But that is, again, we have to know the Word of God. We have to know Scripture. That's why we should always be growing in our understanding of it. Um, so that was enough. Paul, I just wanted to add those things only because I think those can be um, misunderstood and be easily confusing. Uh, let's go through these uh, quickly. Inspiration, Scripture's testimony. The prophets and apostles understood themselves as God's mouthpiece. Uh, you can look up all of those Scriptures. When they spoke as God's mouthpiece, they understood it to be so. Uh, yeah, just so you can, we'll look up those. We're familiar with those. But, um, but Exodus 4 is probably really beginning this prophetic ministry. Is He tells Aaron, uh, because God revealed himself to Moses, Moses told Aaron, he says, what was Moses? He told Moses, you will be like God to Aaron. Why? Because you're, you're giving him uh, the words that I'm giving to you, which, excuse me, are the words of God. Uh, direct speech, such as, thus says the Lord, is used over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. Over 2,000 times, and God said, the Lord said. When you read through the prophets, particularly, it's the most dramatic, of course, uh, you have the prophet speaking, and then it immediately goes to the first person of the Lord. I say, thus says the Lord, and then he's speaking in the first person. Um, which is a rather dynamic uh, reality to God's uh, revealing himself through the prophets. Uh, phrases. Scripture says, God said, the writer said, spirit said, are interchangeable. You can look up those verses. You can have the same passage of Scripture referred to in all of those ways. The spirit said, David said, Scripture said. Uh, it's all the same. What Scripture says, the Spirit says, what Scripture and the Spirit says, they said through a human instrument, right? That's inspiration. Uh, lastly, Jesus and apostles appeal to minute details of historical facts of Scripture. Again, you can look up those. So those are examples, of, particularly of Galatians 3. He makes an argument based on the singular or the plural of a word and so forth. You can look up all of those. So Scripture clearly sets itself out as being the Word of God. Being the Word of God. 
some more. Scripture affirms, I mean, I really wish we could go through all of these. Um, let, me, let me just look at one thing here. Um, I don't want to go through these too quickly. Do what? Okay. Um, we'll go through. Uh, you know, let's just look at some of these because we're not going to finish this all today. It'd be ridiculous to do that. Um, let's just look at some of these so they're in our mind and we can uh, finish this up next week. As scripture affirms previous scripture, uh, let's see, Daniel 9 2 is a good example. You're familiar with that. Daniel 9 2. Uh, in Daniel 9, uh, the prophet Daniel is here anticipating the end of the captivity of God's people. The end of the captivity of God's people after he took them into exile. First, of course, the northern kingdoms by Assyria in 722 B.C. But now Daniel's referring to God's judgment of the southern tribes, or Judah primarily, who were taken captive. Finally, it was three phases, but finally in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. There's three uh, ruling powers during this time. There's Babylon, the Media Persia Empire, and then the Persian Empire. And so Daniel is now at the end of this, in the end of his life, and he is in chapter 9, verse 2. Um, he's, he's anticipating the end uh, of this captivity. And so he says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books, the books, uh, which are going to come into sharper focus here, what books, books, the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel is reading the books, Scripture. He's like, uh, well, God said that this is only going to last 70 years. We're coming near the end of this 70 years, so let's prepare for God's deliverance, essentially. He says much more there, but it's essentially so he then enters into prayer and simply confessing their sin, the rightness of God's character of sending them into judgment and also anticipating God's mercy and grace and faithfulness to his own word by delivering them. What is he referring to? Jeremiah 25, 11. Uh, God said through Jeremiah, this, now this is uh, anticipating this captivity and its length, God says through Jeremiah, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror. Speaking there of the destruction that is going to come. It was a siege that was horrible. Read Lamentations. Uh, that tells of the tremendous suffering that God's people, God's covenant people endured uh, through the starvation. Uh, as they were being surrounded by the nation of Babylon. Uh, and yet... God brought great suffering on them. He says, This whole land will be a desolation and horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon. How many years? Seventy years. There it is. Later he describes that as being because of giving the land the rest for the Sabbaths that it never enjoyed while his people lived in disobedience in the land. 
But here, the point is, is that Daniel was reading it. It was the word of the Lord. He trusted it, and he knew when this was going to come to completion. Um, we can look up those other ones under that point. Let's go to the next one. Prophecy confirms supernatural origins. Prophecy confirms supernatural origin. Deuteronomy 18.22. Deuteronomy 18.22. Get some of these. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Well, uh, you wish that could be applied to much of what goes on into the church uh, today. But the way that argument usually goes, just as a footnote here, and I'm speaking to pastors within the charismatic movement, uh, we're in an age of grace. Basically, now there's a margin of error. That we have prophets in the church, and so prophets can make claims that ultimately don't come about because, well, they're fallible too. Um, that is a redefinition of prophet. What a prophet is. Uh, here, uh, when a prophet speaks, that it has to come true. When they say, thus saith the Lord, um, whatever the Lord thus said, better, better come about, or, or you're a false prophet. And, and let me, as a footnote here, that's why often when you read in the New Test or the Old Testament, uh, when God established a prophet, he let a near prophecy come true, which established them as a prophet in the land. Samuel's a great example here. So that when they looked forward to future things, uh, they had the confidence of the people. They had been proved a credible witness of God. The prophet has spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. Now let's look at Isaiah 44, 6 through 7. Isaiah 44, uh, 6 through 7. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me who is like me. Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Uh, God alone is able to do that. God alone is able to give prophecy. And he's going to do that in the very following chapter uh, that is there. Beginning in 44, 27, he says, it's uh, I who says to the depths of the earth. Now remember, God is saying this in the written word through the man, Isaiah the prophet. Okay, so that's the whole full picture of inspiration. And he gives a very definite word. Uh, I who says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd, he will perform all my desire. He declares that this is over a hundred years before Cyrus was born. Um. This is why, again, another footnote here, this is why the dating of Scripture is very important. When people want to give late dates to Scripture, or excuse me, early dates to Scripture, what they're trying to do is get out from under, particularly liberal scholars, the prophetic aspect of God's Word. So they say, well, Daniel wasn't written until way after they returned from exile, as a way to explain. There's no prophetic elements there. It's too detailed. The Jeremiah or the prophets, when they anticipate events, well, it's because it has an early date. They already knew about it. They're just saying that so they can encourage the people of God with um, God's control over events. But uh, that does not stand. 
against the evidence. The fact is God declares things before they come to pass. By His declaring them before they come to pass, His sovereignty and the certainty of His word as His word, not the word of men, is established. Prophecy is very important in our arguments for Scripture. Um, Something we'll talk about in the transmission of Scripture, actually. But here, he says, Cyrus is going to come. He's going to fulfill my will. He's going to be the instrument in my hand uh, who is going to release my people. You can read down through chapter 45. Um, God is going to go before him. He's going to make him uh, powerful. He's going to make him a subduer of nations. And in fact, uh, by doing that, he's also going to make him the instrument through whom he brings release to his people, release from captivity. The point being that prophecy confirms the supernatural origin. Who, do, do man do that? Does man name somebody by name over a hundred years before they're born? Show me a writing among men that does that. There are none. There are none. I'm tempted to go in a different direction with that, but let's move on. Let's move on. Jesus' life conforms to prophetic scripture. Ah, that's pretty significant. Jesus' life conforms to prophetic scripture. Uh, Matthew 1, 22 through 23. And we have just a couple of minutes, so we'll just mention this here and we'll pick it up here next week. And then we'll look at the text specifically that you're thinking of, 2 Timothy 3.16 and first or 2 Peter 1, 19 through 22. Uh, Matthew 1. Uh, Matthew 1, 22-23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now where is he quoting from here? Does anybody remember? Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, he's quoting saying that the ultimate fulfillment there of what was spoken through Isaiah is the coming of Christ, is the coming of the Messiah. That's the ultimate fulfillment that was being looked forward to there. And so throughout uh, Matthew and throughout the, New Te- the Gospels particularly, uh, the events of Jesus' life conform exactly to the prophetic picture, anticipation, and in ways that could not be contrived, right? Being born of a Virgin Mary, uh, that is not something that can be planned for. Uh, being called out of Egypt because when you're a child... Because a wicked king wants to destroy you. That is not something that's contrived. That is something that shows the sovereign hand of God. And the sovereign origin of scripture that uh, produced that. Uh, When they wanted to take Jesus by crucifixion. And the band of robbers came in the night. uh, The the betrayal of Judas is having taken place. And Peter pulls out a sword. And he cuts off the ear of the high priest. What does Jesus say to him? Does it not have to happen this way? Does it not have to happen this way? As it is written of the Son of Man? What are you doing? When he's walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does he say? Was it not necessary for the, for the Son of Man, for, for me to be crucified and to rise on the third day? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them from the Scriptures... These things were necessary. Why? Because they were written. They were written. And because they were written, and as he said in John 10, and Scripture cannot be broken, they had to be fulfilled. 
Jesus' life in every detail from birth to his works to his death to his resurrection to his return was exactly anticipated in Scripture. The prophetic word of God. And as everything up into his first coming came about, everything referring to his second coming will also come about just as it is written. Lastly, Jesus appeals to Scripture authority. Jesus appeals to Scripture authority. And we're going to have to end on uh, this one. Just you'll look those up on your own. Uh, Jesus repeatedly appeals to the authority of Scripture. He who is the living word appealed, stood on the written word of God as being authoritative, sufficient, and indeed the word of God. Inspiration is foundational. It's crucial that we understand it. It's crucial that we believe it. It's crucial that we um, demonstrate that in our lives personally and as a church. Uh, It is a great blessing and a privilege and a grace and a mercy of God that He has spoken to us and given us His Word. And so... That's something then that we need to make sure that we're having a regular diet of it in our, in our lives, right? Are you regularly spending time with God and His Word, meditating, praying, reading, discussing, hearing, thinking about it, in as much as you are able to in the course of your days? Uh, if not, you need to be, because one, that's how God's glory is formed in your life and God's uh, image, the image of Christ is uh, continually manifest in your life. It's also for your joy and your comfort and your strength. You could, in any, I mean, you've, you've heard this, but, and you know this in your own life, but any counseling situation, the first question is how much time, one of the first questions, how much time are you spending in God's Word and in prayer? And usually, not that much. That generally is pretty standard. Uh, not that much when it, when it comes to issues and relationships and so on and so forth. And so one of the first things to do is to work out a, pr- a plan and help somebody get into the Scriptures in a guided way that they begin to have themselves exposed to the Word of God and to grow in their knowledge of it. Um, let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Help us to understand it. We thank You that You have given Your Spirit that our eyes may be enlightened, Your Word illumined, and the glory of Christ made more manifest and Your glory in Him as we know your word. and as, So help us. And Lord, we are weak creatures. And even we who know you are still encumbered so often by the flesh. We can tend to be lazy. We can tend to be frustrated. We can tend to have apathy. Sometimes we read your word and we don't have an emotional charge. But help us by faith to pursue you and seek you in your word. Help us to be diligent And we do pray that we would know that nearness and fellowship with you. We would know you continually as the bread of life, our Lord Jesus, our sustenance and our joy and our hope, our satisfaction through your word. We pray these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.